Well, if you want to turn in your Bibles to James chapter 5 today, we're getting back into your book, James. I'm sure you're happy about that. And um, studying um, some things about our prayer life that we find within that book. I read an article this week about prayer that said that we should be like a three-year-old son of a Pentecostal preacher. This family had recently moved into this small town in Texas, and he was one of these fire and brimstone kind of preachers. And his three-year-old son and his mom went to the supermarket. And they're going shopping like everybody does on Fridays, and the mother lays down the law before they go into the supermarket and said, look, I know you love chocolate chip cookies. We are not going to get chocolate chip cookies. So don't even ask for them. Don't even ask for them. I don't want to be bothered with it. You behave. We're new in this town. we got to set a good example to everybody. So, you know, she's laying down the law to this three-year-old. And that's kind of the difference between mothers and fathers, aren't they? You see, mom says no. Dad says, if you're good, I will get you some cookies. You know, we know how to bribe the kids. Mom's just laid down the law. Anyway, so they're going through the supermarket. And sooner or later, they go past the chocolate chip cookies. Three-year-old sees a chocolate chip cookie. She goes, Mommy, Mommy, can I have some chocolate chip cookies? She said, what did I say? I said, you're not getting any chocolate chip cookies. So the kid sits down. Okay. So they walk past one of these end caps. There's more chocolate chip cookies sitting out there on sale. Mom, 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 there's chocolate chip cookies. There's chocolate chip cookies. Can I have some chocolate chip cookies? And Mom, 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 Mom. And he's causing kind of a little scene. She's like... No, no, sits him back down and says, no, what did I say? You are not getting any chocolate chip cookies. So she gets to the end of the store and she remembers that, oh, I have to get an ingredient, another ingredient, and this ingredient just happens to be in the chocolate chip cookie aisle. So she goes back into the chocolate chip cookie aisle and, and she, she gets there and the kid sees the chocolate chip cookies. Mama, mama, I want some chocolate chip cookies. I want some chocolate chip cookies. And he's looking at it and he's like, oh, oh I said no, you cannot have any chocolate chip cookies. How many times do I have to tell you? No chocolate chip cookies. So the kid's like, you know, kind of sits down, pops a little bit, and they get to the, get to the checkout line. In the checkout line, right there on the end, chocolate chip cookies, fresh baked. Somebody's selling them at this, at this little supermarket. And the child stands up in the cart, puts his finger up in the air and says, in the name of Jesus, I want you to get me some chocolate chip cookies. Everybody in the store laughs and they all bought the kids some chocolate chip cookies. (laughs) You know, that little boy thought through watching his dad, probably at church, probably preaching, and even in the home, um, learning the value of a prayer life, kind of showed us exactly how we should be with our prayer life, that we just keep going after God, we keep asking, we keep asking, and and just keep going after Him for the things that that we feel that we need. And we're going to look at three purposes of our prayer life this morning by studying this section of James, in James chapter 5. So we're going to be in James chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. If any one of you is sick, he should call for the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. 
The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would rain, but it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. And again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you, Lord, for the truth that we see here about the importance of our prayer lives. And I ask, Father, as we dig into this scripture today, that you will change the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts, that you will place within us a hunger to spend time with you in prayer, that you will place within us a hunger to study your word. You will place within us a hunger to see the kingdom of God go forth in this community, in our lives, and in our families. Lord God, we thank you this morning, and we ask, Lord, that you be with us as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. There are many, many different ideas about prayer. Some people think it's just a religious exercise. Some people will say, well, it's just something you got to do to keep God off your back. Or it's just something you do that when you feel like you're getting into trouble. But I want to look at three different purposes of prayer that are found within the Word of God and and somewhat within this um, particular scripture. And the number one purpose of prayer that I want to look at this morning is simply intimacy with God. Intimacy with God. You know what? God covets intimacy with us. He covets and wants to be intimate with us. You see it in the Garden of Eden. You see it through the cross of Jesus Christ. He craves fellowship with his created. And the the first point about this intimacy with God is seeing that throughout the Bible, he uses the illustration of marriage to describe the kind of relationship that he wants with us. And when you see this kind of illustration in Scripture, and you see it said over and over again, repeatedly in the Old Testament, Israel is called his wife. He is called his adulterous wife when it turns from her. And he he keeps referring back to that. And when you see these kind of illustrations repeatedly referred to in Scripture, you have to ask yourself, why is that? Why is he continuing to use this description to describe his relationship with each one of us? And that is because marriage, in God's perfect will, is an unbreakable bond. That's the way he created marriage. And I'm I'm not getting on anybody who has gone through divorce. I understand sometimes life happens. I understand that. I'm not not talking about that. I'm talking about our relationship with God. He said, what God has brought together, let no man separate. And he's talking about not only the relationship between a husband and a wife, but his relationship with us. And it's the only relationship provided within the kingdom of God and within his created order that two people, two human beings, can be naked and unashamed. Now, I know what you're thinking when I say naked and unashamed. You're thinking about physical nakedness. But I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about two people who were previously individuals choose to lay aside their autonomy, choose to lay aside their independence, choose to lay aside their wants and desires to serve one flesh that comes together in marriage, that chose to serve the relationship. So the nakedness that is talked about here is a oneness, an opening of one soul to another. Ideally, you should love your spouse, the 
more the longer you're together. I can honestly say I love Tammy more now than I did in 1993 when we got married. That's because there's more of a bearing of souls involved. All the layers, the longer you're together, all the layers are stripped away, aren't they? In other words, those layers get stripped away and you get to see these people for who they really are and you still choose to love them. That's what marriage is supposed to be. And that takes some work, that takes commitment, and that takes a dying to oneself for the sake of the relationship. You see, God has done his part in the relationship. He has given his life through Jesus toward this relationship so that his commitment to us is unquestioned. God's commitment to us is unquestioned. You can never doubt God's commitment to us because we have this cross right here as a symbol of that commitment. So whenever you start to question that, whenever you, you're going through a tough time in life and you're thinking, God, where are you? God, God, I, I don't understand where you are. You know, how come you're letting all these bad things happen to me? Are you even being good to me anymore? Just look to the cross and remember just what we just celebrated a few moments ago in communion. Remember the price and the goodness he has shown us in giving us Jesus and the cross. The second point about intimacy with God is that his commitment toward intimacy with us is proven in the price that he paid to be intimate with us. You know, Calvary's cross, if you really think about it, Calvary was God looking forward in time before he even said, let there be light. And seeing you and me and saying, you know what? I understand that this person over here is a mess. I understand that they're full of pride. I understand that they're full of prejudice. I understand that they're rebellious. I understand that even if I were to have some way to bring them into the kingdom, that they're going to rebel. He still, he looked forward in time and said, you know what? I still want that man in my family. I'll do anything to get him in my family. I will pay for that man to be in my family with my son's very life. That's God's commitment toward intimacy with us. That's how far God is willing to go to have intimate fellowship with us. I don't know about you, but when I think about that, it just makes me want to shout. It just makes me want to just sing praises to God. And it just reminds me as the hymn says, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor I am. I thank you, God. And not only does he want this intimate fellowship with us, not only did he make a way, but he has sealed us in him. And that brings us to the third point of intimacy with God, is that we are sealed with the Holy Spirit's indwelling. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, when he said that, for no matter how many promises of God has, or how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both you, us and you, stand firm in Christ. He has anointed us and set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit guaranteeing what is to come. You know, God wants intimacy 
with you and he wants intimacy with me so much that he gave part of himself to us. I mean, think about that. The almighty, all-powerful, sovereign God of the universe gave part of himself to live inside of you. I can't even come up with a human comparison. The best thing I can come up with is me being in love with microbes and trying to give part of myself to that microbe. If you think about the, the, uh, God coming down and living in our hearts. Think about that for a second. The almighty, powerful God resides in us. That's the deposit he gives. That's like, that's like this wedding ring that's on my finger. The Holy Spirit is our wedding ring. God coming to live within each one of us and guaranteeing that deposit. And if you have given your life to Christ, Father God has not only given you himself to live every moment of every day, but this is the seal for all eternity. He has also empowered you with every perfect gift. And for those who pursue intimacy with God, he places his very authority on you. And his almighty sovereign power is available for all those who seek first the kingdom of God. I'm going to talk about that more in just a couple minutes, but let's focus on the second purpose of prayer. And the second purpose of prayer is to foster dependency on God alone. Going back to our initial scripture, James chapter 5. Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. If any one of you is sick, he should call for the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Now I'm going to dissect this scripture a little because sometimes in the Pentecostal church, we put an overemphasis on physical healing as part, of, as part of the atonement of Christ. Now I want to make a very emphatic statement here. As your pastor, if you call me to pray, if you're in the hospital or if we're praying during Sunday school or after service or whenever, if you call me to pray for a physical need, I am going to pray with faith believing that God is going to meet that need. Because that's part of his nature. I mean, God's, one of God's names is Jehovah Rapha, God the healer. So I am, I am fully and completely convinced that God can and will bring physical healing. And I want to make that abundantly clear before we continue. However, although Jesus did physically heal people, you see it throughout, you see it in the New Testament, the disciples and apostles healed people. You see it in the New Testament, you saw it in the Old Testament where the prophets would pray for people and heal them. That physical healing is definitely in the scriptures, but sometimes I think we place just a little bit too much emphasis on it in the Pentecostal church. Sometimes denominational bias creeps into what the Bible actually says, and we end up doing what's called proof texting our way into a belief. Proof texting is to rest, wrestle a section of scripture out of its immediate context to fit within a preconceived notion of what we have about God. 
And sometimes people will point to a scripture like this and say, well, God said that if I do this and I do that, then he is required to do this. And people will say that. And people, you know, they, they, they do all this with all kinds of stuff. Televangelists, they do it with money. If you give, God's going to give back to you. He's going to press it down, rub it together, running it over, all this kind of stuff, and he's going to pour it into your lap, and it's going to be such a big blessing you'll never be able to... And, you know, they, they use scriptures and they rest them out of context like this. But if we put this within its immediate, contextual, cultural, and spiritual meaning and, and, and put the author's intent into this scripture, we're going to see that this scripture that speaks about healing, and, if you take, and even Isaiah 53, which also talks about our healing, that by his stripes we are healed. If you place that contextually within what the prophet or what James was talking about, they are talking about spiritual healing. They're talking about repentance from sin. Let me show you. Let's reread this. It says, And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well, semicolon. The Lord will raise them up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. So what's the context here? Sin. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for each other so that you may be healed. He's, he's talking about sin here more in, the, in this verse, and he's talking about a physical healing. And it's, we, we try to make, make that like a footnote of that verse, but no, it's the subject of the previous verse if you diagram this out. It's, about talking, it's talking about situations and actions that separate us from intimacy with God. And if you read this scripture in its entirety and you paraphrase it a little bit, you could paraphrase it to say if a person has sinned and is suffering spiritually, emotionally, or physically because of it, then let them call for the elders of the church who will lead them back to God in repentance, pray for them and anoint them with oil, signifying their restoration and the Holy Spirit coming and living in their life again, and they will be made well. Let me, let me illustrate this in a couple of different ways. In one of our previous churches, we had a guy that no matter what was being prayed for or what the altar call was about, would run forward and would weep and wail on the altar every single Sunday. I mean, we could have said, if you are a space alien from Mars and you want to repent from that, he would have been on the altar. He was just here every single Sunday on the altar. And as one of the leaders of that church, I would be either standing in the front or moving amongst the people praying up front and praying for them. And, and he would always say, you know, it's like, you know, Tom, what can I pray for for you? You know, why are you up here this Sunday? He goes, it's an unspoken need. It's an unspoken need. It's an unspoken need. And finally, the Holy Spirit just got a hold of me and said, you don't get to come to God's altar and say it's an unspoken need. That's pride. Pride is holding you back from being delivered because Satan wants you to keep that in the darkness. And it's contrary to the scripture that we just read. It says, confess your sins to one another. But we're so worried in church about maintaining this face maintaining our reputation, maintaining this perfection that we think that we need to have, that we're unwilling to confess our faults with one another. You know what, though? Tom confessed adultery to his wife like 15 years ago. His wife knew it, 
but nobody else knew it. They hushed it up and they kept it secret. And he confessed it. And I said, you know what, Tom? If, if you think I'm going to like pick you up and throw you out of this church, this church would be empty right now if I threw everybody out that had problems in their marriage. If I, if I were to have spiritual perfection, this church would be empty, including the pastoral staff. have all had issues in marriage and various things in their life. None of us are perfect. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I'm not excusing sin at all, but none of us is perfect. And Satan wants you to keep that stuff in the dark so that he can keep accusing you, so he can keep throwing the guilt on you, so he can keep, you know, just weighing you down and keeping you from running after God and fulfilling the mission that he has in your life. He wants you to keep that a secret. And you know what? When Tom finally confessed that to somebody, he was set free. It was amazing the change you saw in him. He wasn't avoiding church. He wasn't avoiding coming to men's groups. He wasn't avoiding, you know, discipling and being nice to his wife. It just totally changed him. And his whole attitude, you just saw that the shackles fell off of him. All that fear and dread that he had about this becoming a public thing. And it's not like I stood up right there, you know, grabbed a microphone. Hey guys, Thomas going to go out in adultery and I just wanted to let you know. It wasn't anything like that. It was just a simple act of confessing it to somebody and, say, and hearing God has already forgiven you for that. Don't maintain and allow Satan to maintain those chains on you any longer. God used him mightily in the kingdom. And you know what? God is the universe's ultimate and foremost restoration expert. God wants you to confess these kind of things. God wants all this stuff to be drug into the light because it's only in the light that we experience freedom. That's why it says, Therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. That's a scriptural command, isn't it? A prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And sometimes we approach this, this holy book right here as just a how-to book. How to make our lives better on earth. How God can bless you and, and how we're going to live for him and he can continue to bless you. He can make you healthy and wealthy and wise and, and all these kind of things. But that, the purpose of our prayer life and the purpose of this book is to create dependency upon God. It's to create an utter and complete humbling of ourselves that no matter if we are sick or well, or for somewhere in between, that we will choose to live for the glory of God, that we are utterly and completely dependent upon us. And I want to I end this part of, this, of the message in showing you the fertility of focusing only on our earthly comforts. We, we talked a lot about this today during Sunday school. We're talking about the lottery. And sometimes we can, you know, just like Tom at that altar, he's so focused on what people might think if, if, if this got out in the public, that we allow the things of this life to weigh us down and take our eyes off God, and we just pay lip service to having a relationship with Him. So let me show you something. I brought this rope. 
fire department gave me this when I got on the fire department so I could practice my knots. And it's just a standard fire department rope. Now I want you to think of this rope as heading off into eternity. This is your, your full eternal life. Just pretend this just extends like out forever. This right here, this little green spot I colored this morning, is your life on earth. Look at where your eternal life is. Remember how you thought English class would never end? This was English class, this is your life. If you want to think about it that way. Why are we so focused on our comfort right here? Why are we buying lottery tickets to make this better if we're going to ruin that? Isn't that kind of silly? If you think about it. This is our life here on earth, but it's this little section right here that determines how that's going to be. This is why God wants to be intimate with us. This is why he wants us to be dependent upon him. Because the rewards and positions that we have in heaven are based off of this. And we will be living from this is going to so determine this that that is why God says you need to be intimate with me. You need to be completely dependent upon me. And you need to focus on me in this life and what I have you to do. And it's hard for us to do. I'm not saying it's not hard. I know it's hard. You get, you get that hard day at work. You have a family conflict. You argue with a, a spouse or a co-worker or a friend. And it just seems like I just want to shuck this whole thing and throw it away. But just remember, that rope is pretty long compared to this, isn't it? And that's what the intimacy and dependency that God is calling us to and that's why it's so important. The third purpose of prayer is prayer for kingdom power. Verse 17 of James chapter 5 says that Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. I referred to this a little bit in the beginning of our message. And as I was preparing this message, I was thinking, man, I'm so glad I didn't live during the time the Bible was written. Because, you know, I'm really, really glad that God put people like Elijah with all of their successes and all their faults in the Bible for our instruction. But at the same time, I'm glad there's not a section in there that says John Oscar. I mean, just think about that for a moment. But we get to see these saints of the past. We get to see them with all their failures, with all their doubts. We get to see raw emotion on the pages of this book. And they're there for our instructions. However, their triumphs are also discussed. Elijah was a man just like you and I. You know, we have a tendency to idolize the people in the Bible. But they were just people, just like you and I. They had their hopes, they had their fears, they had their plans before God gave them a calling. Elijah was a man, but he was used mightily of God. 
Under his ministry, fire fell from the sky and consumed a soaking wet offering. In one moment, an entire nation was delivered from idol worship under his ministry. He didn't even suffer death. He was taken to heaven alive. Dead were raised to life. Incredible ministry of a man that, that sought God, that was dependent upon him and was intimate with him. And the key to all this is that Elijah learned to live in intimacy and complete dependency with God. Tammy and Jennifer, if you want to come back up. God needs us to live in kingdom power. Not just so we can do marvelous works. Not just so we can do things, miraculous things for the kingdom. He needs us to live in kingdom power because he needs us to survive in this world. And we can't do it without his power. Elijah honed his dependency on God through prayer. And because of this, God could use him in mighty ways. And God wants to do this in all of our lives. It all depends on how much we are willing to submit to God. And that's why I've called us to fasting and prayer. All of us have deep-seated areas of stubbornness in our lives. Areas that God is calling us to give up in these last days. But Jesus himself said that some things only come out through fasting and prayer. That's why I've called this church to 21 days of fasting and prayer. And I hope you're going to join us with that. Because if you call yourself a Christian, then your life is all for Jesus. Amen? Amen? Let's sing that.